morning. We will be on uh, John chapter 4 today. John chapter 4, it's uh, page 985, I believe, in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you do not have a Bible, you're welcome not only to use that one, but you're welcome to have that one. So we want to make sure that everyone has a copy of God's Word. So we'll be in John 4, page 985. You're welcome to keep that Bible or take it to someone who needs a Bible. It's a great time of the year to give gifts, right? So I'll, I'll give a disclaimer here for, I guess, really uh, all of the pastors here uh, in protection of our family, all right? So as a pastor, your life is on display. So, you know, you see and hear, you know, y'all aren't getting up sharing your struggles and difficulties you see our struggles and difficulties, which is good. God is using those things in our lives. And oftentimes, God uses illustrations in our families. And so, um, again, you have the same stories, right? And so, uh, the, the lesson is that we would say, man, look how God is working. I feel the same way. Because, you know, sometimes we share stories that are really personal. And uh, so, you know, I... I uh, I'm careful about that because, you know, every one of us could stand up here and share those struggles. Um, but it is a little different dynamic, right? And so maybe one day we'll get uh, you to come up and you can share all of the things. Uh, but there'll be things that we resonate with today that we all share, we all deal with. Amen? Feels a little heavy already, right? You know, like, hey, what, what are you talking about? All right, well, let's pray for our time today and we'll start. God, we bow before you today. Thank you, as Colby said, for music, God. Thank you that you use things in our lives to reveal yourself, God, and to sanctify us through that. Uh, Lord, there's so many things that could be said about John 4. We've been here for weeks. We could spend months more in discovering the things about you and how you relate to us. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would show us the things that you want us to say, God, uh, to see. God, help us to see those things uh, that are true about our own hearts and our own lives. And God, would you be glorified today in Jesus' name, amen. So one of the things that uh, we like to do as a family is we like to sit out by the fire pit in the backyard. So we love to do that, especially as the weather gets cooler, we enjoy doing that. And uh, so uh, we started a couple of years ago where we would take a television outside. You know, now with uh, Amazon Fire Stick, you can watch TV anywhere. And so we would take a uh, television out there, stick a fire stick in the side of the TV, and voila, we can watch YouTube TV in our backyard. And so we have been doing this for a few years, and uh, so um, not too long ago, you know, Dad, of course, does most of the work, and so, you know, Mom is cooking, and so Dad's getting everything ready. So I go outside and get the table and set the table up and get the extension cord and stretch the extension cord out and get the fire stick and get the television and the whole nine yards. I mean, this is not like a two-minute activity. I'm getting everything. I'm taking it out there. I set it up, and so now everything is set up. It took me about, you know, 20 minutes or so to get everything set up. I sit down, I get the remote, I click power, and what do you think happened? A colorful spider web appeared on the television. 
Now, if you know anything about televisions, uh, the Hendrys have a Venmo TV we learned this weekend. If you know anything about televisions, you know that the colorful spider web is death, right? That means something has made contact with that television and it is no longer operable. So I take a deep breath, I stand up, I walk in the door, and I said, who needs to tell me something about a television, right? Because I know someone has broken this television, and someone has not said anything to dad about this broken television. So after some interrogation, I find out who did it. And so I said, well, explain to me how a television gets broken, because here's what I want you to understand. This television has been sitting in the room for weeks since it's been broken, weeks, acting like a television, just sitting there on the, on, the, on, the, on the dresser, acting like it's going to serve its purpose. And so, oh, well, it was an accident. Oh, really? Well, uh, explain to me how it accidentally broke. Oh, well, you know, it just, this thing accidentally slung out of my hand and, and smacked the television. I, and so I started reenacting this thing. I said, oh, so you were just twirling around in your room and you slung it into the TV. And of course, that is not what happened, right? And so as I was thinking about the message today, you know, we've been uh, studying John 4 for weeks. And we've studied the side, and we've sang the same song uh, the last several weeks, and we've studied the side of our brokenness, right? Because here's this woman, as Pastor Brian talked about last week, that she's clearly broken, You know, she acknowledges the fact that she's had five husbands. But there is another side. It's the side that I've walked. It's the side that I know from conversations that I've had both in small group and with some of you that you walk. And it is this, that it is very difficult to acknowledge brokenness. It is very difficult. Just like that television that was sitting on the dresser for weeks and weeks and weeks, pretending that it could communicate what it was built to communicate. But in reality, it was worthless. It was broken, inoperable, yet pretending to project something that it had no ability to project. Many, many, many people in church show up, go through the motions, and they project the things that appear to be right. I know. But what happens is, when we don't acknowledge our brokenness, then we can't experience what we were meant to experience. That television, you know, we have a great time. So I went inside, and I had to get another television, bring it out and get it set up, and then we were able to watch television. But here's the deal. Wouldn't it have been a lot easier if when it happened, somebody said, look, I'm just going to confess, I slung the remote into the television. All right? You know, Alabama fans are very familiar with that. That was good, wasn't it? That was good. That was good. And so it would have been a lot easier just to say, you know what? I didn't even, that was not even in the notes. That was good. I do have another Alabama joke, so buckle up, Alabama fans, because it's coming. Right? So it would have been a lot easier just to say, you know what? 
I messed up. I made a mistake. And, confe- and then guess what? The experience of that television would have been so much better. But I had to get over the hump of, you know, non-disclosure and hiding things, right? So as we, as we think about these things in my own life, as I thought about this, my testimony is that I was a very religious person that I thought works was the route to salvation. And I thought that if you did the right things, and, and I struggle with perfectionism, that, that's just me. I want to do everything right, and I want to do it the first time, and I don't want to have to redo it. That's just Matt, and I struggle with that, all right? So that, that is part of my personality, unfortunately, maybe. But, but here's what I thought salvation was. Maybe you resonate. I thought that I was supposed to compare myself to others instead of to Jesus. Now, I got saved in 1998, and I'll share some of that uh, this morning, but I, I compared myself to others instead of to Jesus. I thought that there were things in my heart that I was hiding from God. I thought that my actions for the kingdom negated my sins against Jesus. And I didn't take full responsibility for my own sin. Now, I know some of these are very heavy, but I also know that I'm not alone. That this is what religion does. You see, I wanted to belong to the kingdom, as is our sermon series. I wanted to belong, but I thought that I had to do it myself. I thought I had to do it myself. And so, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but in John 10, uh, John 4, verse 10... This is what Jesus told the woman at the well. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. (coughs) He says again in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And so Jesus clearly communicated, (coughs) excuse me, uh, two different times that she did not know what she thought she knew. You see, that was my problem, is that I did not know what I thought I knew. And so her response in verse 25 is this. She said, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. So here is this kindergartner, if you will, instructing the college professor with a doctorate. She reacts, though, in the same way that most uh, broken people react under the light of holiness. She changed the subject. She changed the subject. You see, that is me and you uh, in the attempt to be religious, is that we deflect the conversation. Now, ironically, she deflects the conversation to theology. Now, remember, just a few verses earlier... You see in verse 20 where she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And as I thought about this, it became so crystal clear to me. And the same thing is true for you if you're in that trap this morning. It is that the word she uses here, she says where the place where people ought to worship. This word ought is also the word for should. And so she is saying, this is the place where people should worship. The first blank on your handout this morning is that it's much safer for us to talk about what we should do than to talk about what we are doing. 
It is so easy for me to tell you what I should do because it does not imply responsibility and it allows me a way out. Yeah, you know, I should do that, but doesn't but normally follow should? Right, so she says, hey, we should do it. Don't you think if she did do it that she wouldn't be where she's at today? Right? If she would have just admitted her brokenness. You see, when confronted with her sin, her immediate response was what she should do. And here is where she struggled. And this is where religion traps you in an unending circle. She, she felt guilt for what she should have done. But yet she did not have the conviction to change it. And so her response was this. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, I should do it tomorrow. Tomorrow will always be better. And so what that did is it helped her cope with the present reality. The same is true for you. You know the television's broken, and you say, tomorrow I will fix it. Tomorrow I will confess. Tomorrow I will do something about it. This is how the enemy keeps people from surrendering to God with the false hope that they will do better next time. You see, my first encounter with the Holy Spirit was in 1986. I was in Watkins Stadium in Laurel, Mississippi, and it was a Bailey Smith crusade, and I vividly remember the Holy Spirit intersecting my life. Now, I was less than 10 years old at the time, and so it was my first encounter with the Spirit of God. And so I lived from 86 to 98 in an attempt to please God. And I did it the best way that I knew how. And that's what you're doing. Listen, I'm not here this morning condemning you for your actions. You're trying your best. This woman at the well was trying her best. You see, tomorrow we say, I will try harder. Tomorrow I will start doing this or that. Tomorrow I will apologize. She has lived her life on the tomorrows will be better train. After all, she's been married five times and she's on her sixth relationship and so what's happened in her life is that should has become her gospel i should be better i should do better i should have said this i shouldn't have done that you see should is a very dangerous word it's a very dangerous word as a matter of fact if you study or read anything about the word should in psychology you will learn that it is a faulty thinking pattern. Although it may help us to temporarily cope with the situation, just like the woman at the well standing before Jesus the Messiah and saying, yes, I should do that. It sets this expectation without defining any manageable steps to achieve it. And you know what that does? It sets you up for failure. If that weren't true, every single person on this planet would be in shape but most of us are not because we have these New Year's resolutions that I should eat better and I should work out or I should do, but we don't because should rarely leads to meaningful action. You see, when we, don't, when, when we continually don't meet our expectations, what happens? Guilt and shame begin to set in and we begin to identify with guilt and shame. You see, what should does is it sets us outside of our true experience. She could have a conversation with Jesus about what she should do, 
even though she wasn't doing it because she could always circle back and say, well, tomorrow I am. Tomorrow I will. She had not experienced true worship, but in her mind, she always saw that as a possibility. So what do you do with should? I don't want to just leave that conversation. How do you change that? Well, instead of using the word should, we should, uh, we should, (laughs) That, that doesn't work. We can use the word could or will. So instead of we should worship on the mountain, I can, I will, I could worship on the mountain. Because that implies opportunity, not guilt, right? So she was convinced that she knew what she could do. All along, she's been saying, if you knew, Jesus has been telling her, if you knew, you do not know. And yet, what does she say? She says in verse 25, I know. So she rocks along with the I know statement, even though the knowledge didn't lead to action. She didn't do anything about it. The television's broken in our house, and someone knew about it, but it did not lead to action. And that is what religion does to you. You see, religion creates this false sense of security in self, and it gives you a distorted view of sin. It gives you a a false sense of security in yourself, and it distorts your view of sin. Here's this woman, and as Pastor Brian said last week, we really don't know the situation. We just know the amount, right? Five husbands, the one you're living with now is not your husband, so we can imply or you know, imagine or whatever. But here's the deal. She did not see herself the way that Jesus saw her because she was continually trying to change the subject. And it caused her to miss what was right in front of her. How do I know that? Well, this is part two of what Jesus is saying here. You see, if you remember just one chapter earlier, just one chapter earlier, in John chapter 3 and verse 2, it says, This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, and look what he says, the same thing she says. He says, We know that you're a teacher come from God. So he acknowledges or expresses this knowledge, the same thing she said, I know the Messiah will come. They are using the same language. The difference is she felt like an outsider, which is why she's there at at 12 o'clock. Nicodemus is coming at night, but Nicodemus is not coming at night because he thinks he's an outsider. Nicodemus is coming because he thinks he's an insider, right? That television sat on the desk for weeks thinking that it belonged. The sad reality is, and I didn't write this, is that in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, Jesus says, many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not done many wonderful works in your name? And he said, I will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. That terrified me for years. For years, it terrified me. Because I thought, actions resulted in salvation i thought that if i did i would get i thought that's how that worked you see nicodemus thought he was the insider but listen belonging is not based on action belonging is based on motive belonging is based on motive i want you to listen real carefully here 
That is why you can perform the same job for a company for years on end and not feel like you're part of the team. Because you're performing an action. You see, you can show up for years and years and years. My father worked for over 30 years for the, for the same company, and one day they showed up and said, you know what, you've got five minutes to get out. Does that sound like belonging? Right? See, on the other side, you let a redneck from Tuscaloosa. Here we go. You ready? On the other side, you let a redneck from Tuscaloosa see an elephant, and it's roll tied to the cows come home. Right? It's true. You don't even have to know where Tuscaloosa is to feel like you're a part of the team for the Alabama fans. Am I right? And it can be any team. I just like picking on the Alabama fans. But it can be any team. As we have this sense of belonging, why is that? You have an Alabama shirt on today. It's because, why? It's because we have the same purpose. We want them to win. And we're cheering them on. And when Milrow throws a bad pass or, you know, gets tackled in the backfield, then we're upset about it. Why? Because we have the same purpose. We want them to win. We're on the same team. We feel like we belong. I feel that way about Liberty University. I see people out in public or I'm around somewhere and I see a Liberty hoodie or shirt or something. And I say, go Flames, right? Because I went to Liberty. I saw a lady the other day uh, at Sam's and she had a shirt on and it said, it's all about the gospel. And you know what I said? That's an awesome shirt. Because why? I belong to the gospel. And she belongs to the gospel. And our commonality is the purpose of the gospel. You see, true belonging is about purpose, not appearance. It is about purpose. It is not about appearance. Nicodemus shows up and he appears to have everything figured out. (coughs) The television showed up out back and it appeared that it would do what I wanted it to do. You see, religion causes you to distort your own reality. And so, just like Nicodemus, the woman at the well, listen to this, the woman at the well, she is not an outsider because of her social issues. She is an outsider because of her sin issues. Nicodemus is not an insider because of his knowledge. He is an outsider because of his sin. You and I don't belong to the gospel because of our works. We belong to the gospel because of the forgiveness of our sin. Look in John 4, 16, Jesus said, go call your husband and come here. She says, I don't have a husband. And he said, you're right, you have five husbands. And number six is not who your husband is. You see, true belonging also requires full disclosure. Full disclosure. Pastor Brian talked a little bit about this last week. He said that full disclosure changes everything. But here's what happens with religion. Here's what happened with the woman at the well. She only wants Jesus to know what she wants Jesus to know. Right? Aren't we the same way? That's why I gave you the disclaimer at the beginning. Is you only want everyone around you to know what you want us to know. The disadvantage of a pastor is that you know more about me than I know about you sometimes. Because you only share what you want other people to know. You see, remember how I said that I thought I was hiding things from God in my heart? 
There are some people in the room who feel the same way. You see, this is what religion does. It convinces you of a false reality that deep down you struggle to believe yourself because you can't hide from God. As I thought about this with Nicodemus, you know, he's standing before Jesus and he says, hey, we know. And so he's parading his knowledge in front of Jesus. But yet, as I thought about it, here's what I realized. Nicodemus is not in front of Jesus because what he believes currently brings peace in his life. That is not why he's there. Nicodemus is standing in front of Jesus because what he believes to be true about God does not bring peace in his life. And the same is true for a lot of religious people in church, is the things that you believe to be true about God do not bring peace in your life because it's wrong. Because it's wrong. Because you think it's based on you. And maybe, maybe all of your life you believed that. Maybe you grew up that way. Maybe someone you love taught you that. And guess what? That's fine. But the reality is there's only one truth. And regardless of who believes it, it doesn't change the reality of it. You see, peace is what Jesus said that he came to give us. I came to bring you peace. He is the bridge between sin and salvation. This constant struggle to keep up appearance to convince others of something that unfortunately is not true. The struggle to even believe it yourself. Nicodemus and the woman at the well, many people today, certainly it was me, are searching for this peace. And Jesus declares to Nicodemus that it is only through rebirth that you can be awakened to this peace. You see, the only route to this peace is surrender, to stop the charades, to stop the pretension, to let go of your version of God. You see, what full disclosure does is it brings relief. Now, the enemy will tell you the opposite. He will say, if they know, they will not love you. But isn't that the gospel? That to be fully known and fully loved? Right? That's the gospel. And it is the only path to Peace is that you would fully disclose, you see, to truly belong in the kingdom. Here's what you do. When I got saved February the 4th of 1998, this is what I said. God, I give everything I know about myself to everything I know about you. Now, did I know everything about God in that moment? No. And to be honest, I didn't know everything that was true about me because what I had believed in my own heart turned out to not be true. And so I said, God, I give you everything I know about Matt to everything that I know about Jesus, you must be born again. You must be born again. You see, on the night that I got saved, I forgot that I had parked at the church because full disclosure brought such relief to me. I ran over a mile to my grandmother's house to tell her that I had gotten saved, forgetting that I even had a vehicle at the church. Because the reality that I could be forgiven and the peace that I experienced in that moment was so overwhelming that nothing else mattered. You see, the reason for that is true belonging, it requires a true beginning. You see, when you fully disclose what's true about you, then guess what happens? Now you have a clean slate. And now you begin to move forward in the truth of what God has in store for you. This woman at the well shows up, 
In the first couple chapters of John, we have these encounters uh, with the woman at the well and Nicodemus. And so she shows up and she fully discloses, you know what? Jesus revealed it. She didn't just say it. And so listen, it may be hard for you to admit the realities of your own sin. And that's normal. It's called the flesh. But Jesus revealed it to her. And on February the 4th of 1998, God revealed to me that I was working for the kingdom and I wasn't surrendered to the kingdom. And so here, Jesus shows up and does the same thing for her. Now, here's what I find interesting. It's unfortunate, it's true, but it's interesting. True belonging requires a true beginning. And so as you read just the book of John, it exists in other gospels, but just the book of John, here's what you read. I love John chapter 1. You go back to John chapter 1 and you see something very interesting. The Bible talks about Jesus calling the disciples. John the Baptist uh, tells John the disciple who was a follower of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I love that scripture. John the Baptist, he is declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. And he is telling the people who are following him that that is the one I am following. And so what happens? They go to Jesus and they say, where are you going? And Jesus invites them and he says, come and see. And what do they do? They begin to tell other people, hey, come and see. We think we found the Messiah. And so in Matthew chapter 4, the same thing takes place. Jesus tells the disciples, come and follow me. And he finds a couple of them fishing. And he says, come and follow me. And what do they do? The Bible says that immediately they began to follow Jesus. So we get this record of all the people that begin to follow Jesus and the inception of that. And I told you, for me, it was February of 1998. But what, here is what is interesting. You do not find the, the initial encounter of Judas following Jesus. You don't find it. It's not there. You, the, first time, the first time that Judas is mentioned is in John chapter 6 all the way to verse 71. All the way to verse 71 he says, He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. We're almost seven chapters in, and one of the disciples is now first mentioned. Everybody else is mentioned in John chapter 1. Interesting, isn't it? You see, his defining characteristic is that he doesn't belong. Because his introduction is one of the twelve who was going to betray Jesus. And that thread is the entire gospel of John. You get to the end, the one who was to betray him said. Right? He's known for it. The entire time. He isn't on the team, even though he thinks he is. Nicodemus is the same way. You see, it was confusing for Nicodemus at first. He says, how can I enter again into my mother's womb, he asks. Nicodemus is trying to use reason and understanding. All that come from within. But Jesus said, no, it's very simple. You must be born again. Now, Jesus told Nicodemus this, but he did not tell the woman at the well this. Jesus told Nicodemus this, but he doesn't tell the Pharisees this. Isn't that interesting? Words that were reserved only for the religious that Jesus uses, not the woman at the well, not even for his family, and not for Pilate. No. He tells Nicodemus, you must be 
born again. Remember, his normal invitation is what in John chapter 1? Follow me. Matthew chapter 4, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. These words that Jesus uses for Nicodemus are reserved, I believe, for the one who is stuck in religion. The one who knows the church answers. And what does it mean? Well, here's what it means. Jesus is saying, you have to start over. He's saying that you have attempted it your way and it doesn't work like that. He is saying that religion is a long road, but it is a dead end. It does not lead to eternal life. You see, this rebirth, this regeneration that Jesus is talking about, it's very simple. It is where the Spirit of God rushes into our lives and it leaves a path of radical heart change. Heart change. It is far more than works or rules. And the point that Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus is that we cannot accomplish it on our own strength or, as he tells Nicodemus, in our own knowledge. You see, for me, I always felt like there was something that I was not doing. Something was wrong, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Maybe that's you. And here's why that is true. Because the flesh was constantly fighting to get credit. And the flesh was constantly fighting to have skin in the game. You see, that is the point that Jesus is making to Nicodemus. That it's not about you. This is why a lot of people struggle with their salvation. Because they are depending upon something that they did. You see, in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, I told you I struggled with those verses for years. Depart from me, I never knew you. And the picture that Jesus is painting is as they would go through fields... They would knock down the wheat as they were walking through the fields to create a path. And that's what I was doing in my life, is I was trying to create the path to God. Nicodemus studied all of his life. He was trying to create this path to God. He asked Jesus in verse 9, how can these things be? And Jesus said, aren't aren't you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Jesus is using the passive voice with every verb that he speaks to Nicodemus and so he's telling Nicodemus something outside of you has to happen it's not something that you can do yourself but here's where Nicodemus struggled and 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 if you if you are here banking on religion this morning this is why you struggle this is why Nicodemus struggled because Nicodemus spent his entire life built on what he could do based on how good it could be, how well he memorized the law, and how well he abided by the law. He was good at it. He was really good at it. And you know what? You may be really good at it too. Here's why he was good at it. Because in the Old Testament, he followed the Ten Commandments. And if you've studied the Ten Commandments, here's what you'll find. The Ten Commandments say what? Eight of the Ten Commandments start with, you shall. It says, here's what you should do. You shall honor. You shall not murder. You shall not cover, right? Here's all the things that you do. You shall do these things. Words he knew very well. And so what was Nicodemus doing? Doing what he had learned. He knew his entire life was predicated on those words. But here's the problem. When Nicodemus showed up in front of Jesus, Jesus was not impressed by what Nicodemus had done. 
Jesus is not entering in your life and doing a survey of the things that you have accomplished in order to be impressed by those things. That is not his mission. You see, true belonging in the kingdom is not about what we bring to the kingdom. It's not about what you or I bring to the kingdom. I mentioned this months ago, but participating in the kingdom is a get-to. It's not a have-to. Look, you don't have to do it. You get to do it. Now, if you want eternal life, you must do it. Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Ironically enough, today I'm preaching on John chapter 3, and in 1998, the message was on John chapter 3. Because what God revealed to me as Nicodemus showed up, and he said what? The woman at the well, I don't know if you noticed the pronouns, the woman at the well says, I know the Messiah. Nicodemus showed up, and he says, we know. You see, that was the difference maker for me, is that I thought we all sinned. I thought we were all in trouble. I didn't realize that it was my sin that had done that. Remember, I was deceived. And Jesus said, you must be born again. Singular. So for me, God revealed, look, it's true, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But it's also true that I have to be born again. You see, it was not what Nicodemus had done. It's not what I had done. It's not what you had done. Because the reality of the new covenant is this. In Hebrews chapter 8, look what the Bible says. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Very distinctly different. You shall too, I will. Right? He says, of those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one of his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. How? For I will be merciful towards their sin or their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. Jesus said, what you can't do for yourself, I will do for you. I will. Man, isn't that so good? That we go from you shall to I will. Jesus reveals that this religious man that was enlightened by the law is completely still in the dark. And then something fascinating happens. In John chapter 3, in verse 11, the Bible says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, and look at the pronouns Jesus uses. He says, we speak of what we know. Genesis 1.26 says, let us make man in our own image. There is a God who loves you. And he has employed every part of himself to rescue you, including the Spirit of God and the Son of God. And the Son of God is standing before the man who thought he knew everything. And he says to him, we, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we speak of what we know. And we bear witness to what we have seen. You see, Nicodemus thinks he knows the Word, but the Word does not abide in him. He knew the law, but he did not know the Spirit. He thought the law, he thought the rules was the thing that was most important. As I thought about that, I I like basketball and football and baseball, and so I thought about rules, okay? Imagine with me, baseball is an easy example, so imagine with me if you are playing baseball. And imagine that you're uh, you're up to bat, okay? And and you're batting the entire time, you know, the count is 0-0. If you don't know baseball, you get four balls to walk or three strikes and you're out, okay? You've heard that before. So imagine in baseball, if you're up to bat and the entire time you're thinking, three strikes, 
three strikes, three strikes, right? Because that's the rule. Three strikes and you're out. And so the whole time, three strikes, three strikes, and here comes the ball. Our ball one, the umpire says, but all you can think is three strikes, three strikes, three. And then strike two, three strikes, three strikes. The entire time you're fixated on the rules. Imagine if you're in the field, okay, and, and the pitcher's pitching the ball and you're playing in the field and all you can think of is three outs, three outs, three outs. It's only three outs, three outs. And they, the, uh, the ball's hit to you and you get the ball. Well, it matters how many outs there are because if there's three outs and you catch it, then you don't have to throw, to throw it back in. Here's my point, is if all we do is focus on rules, we miss the experience, I don't know the home runs because all I'm focused on is there's there's still three outs. We can only get three outs. I'm not experiencing the plays and and the defensive dives and the catches and the throws and all that. I'm not enjoying the camaraderie of the game because all I can fixate is on the rules of what I have to do or what I'm doing wrong. So many people are so fixated on what they have to do or what they're doing wrong. And they're not enjoying the life that God has given us. One of the fruit, fruits of the Spirit is joy. You would never know the good things, the runs scored, the wins, because all you could focus on is the rules. So what if you stop focusing on the negative and you focus on the positive instead? You see, the opposite is about to happen to the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, we're back in 4. Jesus then discloses to her, he says this in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. The original language says, I who speak to you am. I am. After sharing her truth with Jesus, he shared his truth with her. This is what Jesus desires for all of us, that we would be honest about who we are. Because when we're honest about who we are, you see, when we are are willing to admit our brokenness, this leads us to the truth of who Jesus is. All along, Jesus wanted her to know him. And he responds with, I am. You see, this is the first declaration of I am in the Gospel of John. And it's to an outsider. It's after he has met with the religious leaders And yet he doesn't disclose that he is the Messiah. You see, the most helpful words that she had ever heard have just been spoken to her. The most helpful words in my life that have ever been spoken to me was on February the 4th of 1998 when the Spirit of God revealed to me that it was not based upon me. She has heard many times in her life, I'm leaving you. I don't love you. Your husband didn't survive, ma'am. Possibly many other variations of that sentence. But in an instant, the God of all hope revealed himself to her. And what he revealed to her is this. In this moment, she has met her seventh husband. And he is the perfect bridegroom. And just like that, the conversation ended. It's over. We have no more record of the conversation. Because in verse 28, it says, The woman left her water pot, her water jar, and she went away into town. And she said to the people, and so she begins to declare the truth about the Messiah. Because lastly this morning, true belonging results in change. 
True belonging results in change. This past weekend we had our marriage retreat, which it was amazing. I was so encouraged as Pastor Tony said, God did some really, really cool things. And so I was thinking about our message, our time together today. True belonging results in change. You see, when, when a husband and a wife commit to one another, when they officially become one, they now belong together. Right? Isn't that what the Bible says in Genesis? That two become one that you shall leave and cleave. And that belonging brings about great change. Right? It brings a lot of change. Change in the woman's last name. Change in where you both now live. Change in how you both, uh, in how you both now live. Lots of change. You see, for this woman, everything radically changed for her as well. She finally saw herself for what Jesus had seen in her the entire time. For the first time in her life, she felt valued. You see, religion never leaves you with value. Remember, it's about the shoulds and the tomorrows. But the only religion only leaves you with the facade of doing better tomorrow. That you should try again, that you should do better, that in order for her to have a better tomorrow, that she should do better. But the reality was, in order for her to have a better tomorrow, she had to leave her old identity and join her new one. She had to change. For you this morning, if, if you resonate with the story of religion that you've been trying to do it your own way, that there isn't peace in your life and that you're not willing to admit your brokenness, you have to leave that behind and you have to move forward to Jesus. As a matter of fact, the, the night that I got saved, this is what was communicated in the sermon. You have to leave your seat and you have to leave your sin. You have to leave your seat and you have to leave your sin. You see, to take the water pot back into town would declare that she had been at the well. Why are you at the well in the middle of the day? You see, the well that everyone else went to in the morning. But in order to belong to Jesus, we have to leave some things behind. We have to change. So what changed? What changed? Well, in verse 21, Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship, or verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. And then look at verse 24. How does she change? Jesus says this. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You see, here's what happened for the woman at the well. She moved from should to must. She moved from should to must. Man, that's good. She moved from what she should do, and the tomorrows will be better, and I'm going to try harder, to what? That I must do it. You must worship God in spirit and truth. You must do it on His terms. You must do it on His timing. Not when you want to, how you want to, with who you want to. You must do it on His timing, based on His truth. 
The Bible says in John 17, 17, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. Listen, if you've been living your life based on how you want to do it and when you want to do it, you are on a dead-end street to nowhere. You will never have peace in your life. There will never be joy in your life. And there will never be evidence of the movement of God in your life because God doesn't operate on your timetable. You must be born again. She moved from should to must. And here's what should does. Should leaves room for your flesh to talk you out of it. You see, this morning you're sitting here and you're thinking, I should do something about this. And your flesh is saying, well, you know, not today. Not today. You see, must creates the urgency required to follow Jesus. When Jesus called the disciples in Matthew chapter 4, the Bible says immediately they began to follow him. Immediately. What does the King James Version say about John chapter 4? That Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Must. Must. Must prioritizes the gospel. The woman at the well had never prioritized the gospel in her life until now. In John chapter 4 verse 29, she says, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. She said, hey, I'm the lady with five husbands. And he knows about it. And he still spoke to me. You see, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me just the way that you are. He just refuses to leave you that way. He had the conversation with Nicodemus because he loves Nicodemus. Jesus loves the religious people just as much as he loves the people that are farthest from him. Because the reality is we're all the same distance away. That sin separates us from God. You see, a lot of times in my life I, I thought this. The more that I realized what religion had done to me, I thought to myself, man, it is, it is so much better to just be mired in your own sin and be far from the gospel and not have religious pretension. Because what religious pretension does is it'll try to talk you out every time of the things that you're doing wrong. Because your flesh is going to try to justify all the things that you're doing wrong. And when I read these words that Jesus loves me just the way that I am, but he refuses to leave me that way, I realized that I am just like everybody else. But Jesus has done it all for me. That I don't have to blaze my own path. I don't have to work. I don't have to earn my way to heaven. That Jesus has done it for me. But what I have to do is this. I have to respond. That night that Jesus spoke to me and said, Matt, you've, you've given your life, but you've not given your heart. You've not surrendered yourself. Here's the deal. I had a choice. Could I leave the same way that I came in or could I experience must for the first time in my life? You see, it would have been easy for me to say, you know, I should do something about that. I should make a change. I should try better. Tomorrow will be better. But that's not what I did. Thank God that's not what I did. I prioritized must in my life. And so this morning, I want to challenge you to do this. I know the battle in your heart. I know I was there. You're sitting here this morning and you're saying, man, if I go to that altar... They're going to think I'm a sinner. Well, guess what? 
I know you're a sinner sitting right where you're at. But that's what you're thinking. I know that. You're thinking, man, if I go to that altar, man, they're going to they're gonna think something's going on in my life. Look, we already know something's going on in your life. You just think you're hiding it. So I, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be honest about that. I want you to be honest about who you are. Now, look, you, if you don't want to come to the altar, don't come. If you want to kneel at your seat, if you want to come down and pray with one of the pastors, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to have an encounter with Jesus. Because apart from the encounter with Jesus, the woman at the well is still the same today. Apart from an encounter with Jesus, Nicodemus is still the same today. Now, we don't know the end result of Nicodemus, but we know the end result of the woman at the well. And so what it tells us is this, is that religion is sticky. And it was difficult for Nicodemus to confess the things that he thought were true but ended up not being. Do not let religion send you to hell. Do not. Do not let religion rob you of joy. Man, what an incredible day it will be to talk to the one. Isn't it fascinating that religion wants credit and we know Nicodemus' name? But the woman who is fully broken, we have no idea who she is. And yet it's her story that impacts us the most. It is your brokenness that God uses to declare his greatness. Don't be ashamed of your inability because we're all the same. Let God radically change you. Let today be must, not should. God, we bow before you. And God, our desire is to be honest. God, I know in a room this size, there are people that are struggling with the reality of doing it their way. And I know that they don't have peace. I know that. I experienced it. But God, I know that you bring peace, and it is so much better to confess. God, we all desire to belong. And I know that in religion, the desire is to belong. To try to do the right thing. It's not that, that we tried to do the wrong thing. We wanted to do the right thing. But our flesh tricked us into believing that that was enough. And it is not. Jesus, thank you for the urgency of the gospel. Thank you that she left immediately. Thank you for the example of the disciples in Matthew 4. That they immediately left their nets. That they immediately followed you. God, today, let it be immediate. Lord, as soon as we stand, God, would you call people to repentance? Would you call us to confess that we're trying in our own strength to do the things that you do for us, God? That it is no longer you shall, but it is I will. That you have accomplished for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you, Jesus, for that reality. God, this morning, would you do what only you can do? Thank you for the Trinity. Spirit of God, would you move in this room? Would you be glorified in Jesus' name? Amen. Stand with me this morning during invitation. Whatever God would have you to respond, I'll be on the side. Our pastors will be on the side. Respond to what Jesus is.